This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hello, and welcome back to the AWLS Podcast. My name is Matt Gunderson. I am a pediatric emergency physician at the University of New Mexico. And just FYI, for anyone who has not watched Breaking Bad, New Mexico is a state in the beautiful desert southwest region of the United States. I was recently told by Rich, that's Dr. Inga Bretson, who runs the podcast, that this podcast has now had listeners in over 180 different countries, which is amazing and absolutely awesome. It also presents an interesting challenge, especially when we talk about topics like wilderness toxicology, which is so heavily dependent on location and geography and environmental factors. So I'm going to try to keep that in mind as I tend to mention lots of geographic locations in my lectures and podcasts. And having an international audience is particularly relevant today as we are going to be focusing on fire ants, which are found as native species in many countries in Latin America, but now have spread all over the world and are considered invasive in many other countries. I will be speaking from the perspective of a physician living and practicing in the United States, but your perspective might be very different depending on who you are and where you are. My goal today, and in every AWLS podcast, is to provide a mix of some detailed information within the realm of my personal experience and professional experience, um, but also some general principles that can be broadly applicable to everyone in the world of wilderness medicine. So with that said, let's get started with today's topic. I want to talk about Hymenoptera, which is a group of insects. Actually, it's called an order of insects, and it is a very large order with over 150,000 different species. This includes all ants, bees, and wasps, and my plan is for this to be a three-part series with one episode about ants with a specific focus on fire ants, which we are going to talk about today, and a second episode talking about bees with a focus on quote-unquote killer bees. And lastly, the third episode will focus on wasps, including the so-called murder hornets that were in the news here in the United States recently. But first off, a very brief introduction to Hymenoptera in general. As I mentioned, they are insects, and like all adult insects, they have three body segments, a head, a thorax, and an abdomen. They also have antennae, compound eyes, and chewing mouth parts. Most have two pairs of wings, with a notable exception being worker ants, which brings up an interesting point. We are speaking very generally here with over 150,000 different species. There is obviously going to be some variability. Females of this order typically have an ovipositor for inserting eggs, and I use that specific word because they don't necessarily lay eggs in the nest the way we think of birds doing it or turtles or whatever. The um, ovipositor allows them to insert eggs into enclosed spaces, which may include the tissue of a plant or the tissue of another insect. Hymenoptera, like other insects, are often parasitic, sometimes towards each other. Their young develop through what is called complete metamorphosis, which is to say they have an egg stage and a larval stage and a pupal stage. 
All ants and bees and wasps are included in the suborder Apocrita, which refers to a narrow segment of their abdomens. And all ants and bees and stinging wasps are included in the subclade Aculeata, which refers to the ability of the females to use the ovipositor as a stinger. All ants belong to the Firmicidae family, which we are now going to focus on. And again, we're going to be speaking in broad terms here. There are over 20,000 different species of ants, each species a little different from all the others. But generally speaking, ants live in colonies, and they have some remarkable abilities. They can communicate with each other. They have societies with well-organized divisions of labor, and they work together to solve complex problems. I think one of the most famous examples is the video clip of the fire ant colony in the Amazon during the flood season. I think it was on BBC Earth, I believe. You can look up the video online. The colony is about to be flooded by the river, and the fire ants anticipate this, and they evacuate the entire colony, including the queen and the brood, which includes all of the eggs and larvae and pupae in the colony. And they link themselves together to form a raft that floats on the surface of the water. And they can survive like that for weeks or even months at a time. And then when the water goes down, they rebuild a new colony. So a very impressive ability to cooperate in what is essentially a large-scale civil engineering project involving their entire population using themselves as the building materials. So, pretty incredible stuff. I'm going to editorialize for a second here uh, because we see these incredible accomplishments by ants and we tend to idealize them and we use ants as examples of amazing teamwork. They all work hard and work smart and work together and look at the incredible things that they accomplish for the good of their colony. And that is very true. But I would argue that ant colonies are not perfect societies. Ants commit violence, kidnapping, murder, and cannibalism on a pretty frequent basis. In fact, looking at some of the most notorious serial killers among humans, guys like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and Jack the Ripper, what those guys did is like the average day for the average army ant. And, you know, we haven't been able to form focus groups to interview the worker ants yet, but some ant researchers question how much of it is selfless voluntary cooperation versus forced labor, possibly zombie slave labor controlled by the queen using pheromones. Still a lot of research about this being done in various ant species. And then, you know, when an, when an individual ant dies, the only reason that any of your buddy ants cares at all is now they can eat your dead body for free food. So there's that. So the teamwork is amazing, but it definitely comes with the dark side, and I'm not a hater. I'm not an anti-ant. I have no personal vendetta against them. But uh, something to think about the next time you hear somebody comment about the incredible cooperation of ants. Along those lines, ant colonies tend to have very rigid caste systems, and it's worth taking a minute to talk about those. The traditional teaching has been that each colony has one queen, but again, this varies among different species, and some colonies have several queens, some of which have mated and some have not. Queens tend to be larger physically than other ants in the colony. 
They have wings for mating, which happens while flying hundreds of feet up in the air. They can lay thousands of eggs, in some cases millions of eggs in their lifetimes. And some queen ants have lifespans up to 20 or 30 years in captivity, which is much, much, much longer than most ants. Worker ants are the backbone of each colony. They are all female. They tend to be smaller than the queen and usually don't have wings. Um, they usually do not reproduce, although, again, there are some exceptions in some species. The worker ants do most of the work, which is a shocking twist that I'm sure you were not expecting. They build and maintain the colony and are responsible for supplying food to the queen and her brood and themselves. These are the ants that are active outside of the nest. So when you see ants, you are seeing worker ants. When you think about ants, you are most likely thinking about worker ants. Worker ants are sometimes categorized according to how big they are and what kind of work they do. You will hear about soldier ants, which are larger than most common worker ants and have stronger mandibles that they use for fighting, either defending their colony or attacking others. They are also all female. In the literature, there seems to be some debate about whether soldier ants are a separate class from worker ants or whether they are just worker ants who are big and fight a lot. From a wilderness medicine standpoint, that distinction doesn't really matter very much because either way, it just hurts a lot when they sting you. Okay, so, so far, we have talked about queens, who are all female, and workers, who are all female, and soldiers, who are also all female. So at this point, you are probably wondering, are there any dudes in any ant colonies? The answer is yes, and they are called drones. They are usually small and have very short lifespans, roughly one to three weeks. And essentially, they only exist to mate with a queen. They do have wings because mating happens up in the air, a couple of hundred feet above the ground. And apparently in some species, after mating, the drones literally drop dead immediately after. So if you have ever been in a really short but very intense relationship, maybe you can sympathize. In other species, the males live for a few days after, but they are not allowed back into their home colony. And so sadly, they just go off and die alone, presumably eating a microwave dinner in a cheap apartment with no furniture. So that is a basic background of ants in general. We are now going to focus specifically on fire ants because they are the most relevant threat to humans, not just medically, but also in terms of uh, economics and environmental damage. And not just in the United States, they are spreading all over the world. It is worth mentioning that there are other species of ants that are medically relevant, such as bullet ants in Central and South America, which are considered to have the most painful sting of all ant species, described as feeling similar to, uh, you know, uh, being shot and hit by a bullet. And there are some harvester ants in the western United States that are claimed to have venom that is even more toxic than fire ants. But these ants are overall much less of a threat to human civilization compared to fire ants, as uh, we are going to learn in the next few minutes. Fire ants belong to the genus Solnopsis, which includes about 200 different species, with about 20 species being fire ants. So not all Solnopsis are fire ants. And also important to know that in some parts of the world, the local people call their local ants fire ants, even though they are not actually part of the genus Solnopsis, which is not to say that they are doing anything wrong. They can call their local ants fire ants if they want to. 
but that can introduce some confusion sometimes. Fire ants are especially well known for their aggressive behavior and extremely painful stings. And I think sometimes that a lot of people don't know is that the stings are painful in two different ways. I can testify to that. And how do I know this? Well, let me tell you. Let's do a short break for story time. So several years ago, I was working on a project down in Honduras, and on one of my days off, I decided to do an adventure hike to a hidden waterfall in the rainforest there that, according to legend, was really beautiful. You could hire a guide from a local tourism company, and while I was in their office making those arrangements, a British couple was there also looking for an adventure, and they overheard us talking about this waterfall, and they asked if they could join in, and everyone agreed. So we started the adventure with four of us. Our guide was probably about 60 years old, I'm guessing. He told us that he had spent his entire life in that little town in Honduras on the edge of the jungle. He was a small guy, but you could tell he was really tough. And you could tell that he really knew the jungle really well. Like if if you were planning a journey into the jungle, he was the guy you wanted to be the leader. And then I was there, obviously, I was about 30 years old at the time. And the British couple, a man and a woman, were probably just a few years older than me, I'm guessing. The... Hike was a day trip. It was a long day, but it was only one day. It ended up being a series of different little adventures, one right after the other. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but I do think the river crossing in the jungle is worth mentioning. And then I'll go right to the part about the fire ants, I promise. So we start out, we ride in a Jeep on this narrow, muddy road going into the rainforest. And just the ride in the Jeep was quite an adventure. I think that alone was worth the cost of the entire trip. It was really fun. And when we get to the point where we can't go any further in the Jeep, we jump out and our guide grabbed a machete and nothing else. By the way, he wasn't carrying any food or water. Us gringos, of course, had our backpacks and hydration reservoirs and such. And we started hacking our way through the jungle. And eventually we get to the banks of a river. And then our guide announces that we are going to walk across this river. And it was probably only about 50 feet wide, but the water was moving pretty fast, especially in the middle of the river. And also the water seemed really dark, which probably makes you think, okay, who cares? But it was actually kind of unnerving to me. And for the record, it is common for water to be dark in areas with a lot of plant life. Obviously mud and sediment can make water dark. But in addition to that, when plant material falls into the water and starts decomposing. It releases chemicals, certain types of acids, I think, that can make the water appear darker, which happens in a lot of places. People who live in the American South are familiar with Blackwater rivers and Blackwater swamps. And the Amazon Basin has a giant river, which is a major tributary of the Amazon River that is literally called the Black River, Rio Negro, because the water is so dark. So I understood why the water was so dark, but in that situation, dark water, deep in a jungle, uh, it made the river seem kind of ominous and kind of threatening. Like, I don't know how deep it is, and I can't see if there are crocodiles or giant snakes in this river. And if I didn't have a guide there telling me that we were going to walk across that river, frankly, I don't think I would have even dared to dip my finger in it. But alas... We were not talking about dipping our fingers into the river. We were talking about dipping ourselves into the river and then walking across it. 
But our guide had a good plan. He told us to wait on the banks while he crossed all the way to the other side to make sure that um, it was a good place to cross. And so he secured his machete to his belt and then started walking across the river. And it seemed to be going well at first, but then he started struggling as he got closer to the middle of the river where the water was flowing faster. And then suddenly the current was just too strong and he was washed away down the river. And there was nothing we could do from the banks. We didn't have a rope or anything like that. So all we could do is watch as the water carried him downstream and out of sight. And I'll always remember the British guy bumped me with his elbow and said, right, I guess that makes you the captain, eh? That was a horrible British accent, I know. And I was like, well, I hope not, because if I'm the captain here, we're in big trouble. And the reason he was able to make a joke at that moment, I think, was because our guide had seemed so calm. His head never went under the water. In fact, I feel like he and I were making kind of awkward eye contact the entire time as he floated away. And he never panicked or thrashed around in the water or anything like that, just floated away in silence. And I think that gave us a sense of reassurance that he was going to somehow save himself, which was good because I'll tell you one thing, the gringo tourists certainly couldn't save him. And in our defense, not only did we not have any rescue equipment or even a satellite phone or anything else useful, but you can't hardly move around in a real jungle. You know, in the movies, whenever people are in a jungle, there always seems to be a well-established, clear-cut trail with solid, packed ground. In reality, most of the ground is soft dirt with multiple layers of decaying vegetation, very unstable to walk on. And the vegetation is so thick, and it's everywhere, including right up to the river and actually hanging over the river, that you need to hack like crazy with a machete just to be able to take two or three steps in any direction. And in our case, the one guy who actually had a machete had just been abducted by Old Man River. So forget about running along the banks of the river while you figure out a rescue plan. In fact, forget about running anywhere. It was almost impossible to even see the path behind us that we had just barely taken to get there. So the three of us bravely just stood there staring at the river but long story short, our guide was able to rescue himself somehow, and then he came and found us, and we did eventually end up crossing the river successfully. We actually locked arms and crossed together to make sure that nobody floated away alone, and really, you could say that we crossed that river in the jungle working together in the exact same way that fire ants would have done it, and if this was the plot of a movie, we would call that foreshadowing. Fast forward a little bit. We hiked for several more hours, eventually did find the hidden waterfall. It was indeed very beautiful. Many photos were taken and overall a good time was had by all. We took a different route to get back to the Jeep. There was actually a bridge over the river several miles upstream and it ended up being a rickety rope bridge like something you would see in an Indiana Jones movie and so that river crossing was also exciting but in a different way. But before we got there, we had to hike several miles through a section of rainforest, but it wasn't bad. The vegetation wasn't nearly as thick there, so we didn't need machete very much. And we were mostly able to just walk along at a pretty good pace towards the bridge. 
our guide was telling us about plants and animals there, and we were talking and laughing and having a good time. Indeed, we were a merry band of travelers marching through the forest. But the good times came to an abrupt end when our guide suddenly shouted, Corre, which means run in Spanish, and then he proceeded to take off running. And I was like, huh, what? And then I heard an absolutely blood-curdling scream close behind me, and I turned, and the British woman in our group had fire ants all over her. And she was just going crazy. And I will admit that for about two or three seconds, I was thinking, okay, I think somebody here is being a bit overdramatic. And then I changed my mind about that very quickly when one of the fire ants stung me. And it was an incredibly intense, sharp, piercing pain in my leg, followed by a burning sensation. And I was like, dear God, just let me die now so this horrible pain will end. And it turns out, as you have probably guessed, uh, we had accidentally disturbed a fire ant colony, and we were now being swarmed. And so, important lesson learned. When you are in the jungle and your local guide suddenly shouts, run, and then takes off running, you should probably take off running too, which we eventually did, and in the end, everybody was okay. The woman was stung several times, and I'm sure she was very uncomfortable over the next few days. Her husband had been stung a few times. I got stung once, and our guide was not stung at all. And that is a pretty common pattern in fire ant attacks against hikers. The people in the front of the group unknowingly agitate some of the ants. Those ants send out a distress signal through pheromones to the rest of the colony. But it takes a few seconds for them to mount a full swarm, and so it's often the hikers in the middle or towards the back of the group that bear the brunt of the fire ant frenzy. But we all survived. We all lived to hike another day. And looking back, it was a very interesting experience, a painful experience, but an interesting, painful experience. So that is the end of my long rambling story. Talking more about fire ants, they are mostly native to Central and South America, but there are five species that are native to North America. And folks who live in the United States, you may have heard of the desert fire ant or the golden fire ant or the southern fire ant, which are present in the warmer regions of the country. But the native species mostly tend to mind their own business. The huge concern now are the imported fire ants, which have been accidentally transported all over the world by humans over the past several decades and are now one of the most damaging invasive species on the planet. There are news stories all over the internet about this with maps and graphs and charts showing you how big of a problem it has become. Australia in particular has been waging war against fire ants for a few decades now. China and Taiwan, a bunch of other countries in Asia. Because the fire ants tend to travel with fruit that is being transported from Latin America, they tend to infest locations that are heavily involved in the ocean shipping industry. In the United States, red imported fire ants, or RIFA, R-I-F-A, are the main concern. It is worth mentioning that black imported fire ants actually arrived in the U.S. first in about 1918, but their spread has been mostly limited to the states of Alabama, Mississippi, and parts of Tennessee, I believe. Red imported fire ants arrived in the 1930s in Mobile, Alabama, as accidental cargo from South America, 
and they have spread like wildfire, now infesting over 300 million acres across 12 states in the U.S. They are most heavily entrenched in the southeast states, which makes sense because that is where they first arrived, and that is their equivalent of the Mayflower ship landing at Plymouth Rock, and that area is very lush with lots of water and lots of wildlife, so it's an excellent environment for them. And they have no natural predators to stop them from spreading. For the sake of completeness, let's talk for a minute about how they spread. The original colonizers got off the boat and presumably took some photos of their new place for Instagram, hashtag Sweet Home Alabama, and then got to work building the original colony here in the United States. And when a queen fire ant is ready to mate, she will fly out of the colony and mate in the air, as we talked about, and then will go find a new place to lay her eggs and establish a new colony, usually within a few miles of the colony where she was born. And the first ants that develop from those eggs will get to work immediately building a colony. The colonies grow and mature very quickly, and with each queen ant being capable of laying sometimes millions of eggs, you can see how fire ants spread so quickly. Their empire here in the United States now reaches from coast to coast, mostly in the warm weather states, as one article described it essentially from California to the Carolinas. Unfortunately, they tend to be troublemakers. They damage crops and farm machinery as they forage for food. And of course, with their aggressive swarming and stinging, they are a threat to humans and livestock and native wildlife. The estimated economic cost of this fire ant invasion has already reached multiple billions of dollars and will probably get worse before it gets better. So how does all of this apply to wilderness medicine? The obvious answer is the more these fire ants spread all over the world, not just the U.S., the more likely you will encounter someone who has been stung by them. And maybe while you are looking at that person, you might just get stung yourself. I definitely know how that feels. And it's important to know that fire ants are native species in many parts of Latin America. We talk a lot about them being invasive. My group in Honduras was probably stung by a species called tropical fire ants, and they were there in a jungle where they had probably been living for millions of years before. And when we came walking along, you could argue that humans were the invasive species in that situation. Now, in order to make sure that you are a knowledgeable and well-prepared AWLS provider, let's go over what might happen. As we already talked about, fire ants swarm and attack when they feel threatened. They first use their mandibles, their chewing mouth parts, to clamp down on the skin of their victim, thus securing themselves in place, and then they proceed to inject venom using the stinger on the hind end of their bodies. It's worth knowing that their stingers are not barbed like honeybees, so each individual fire ant is capable of stinging multiple times. So it's important to remove them as quickly as possible. In cases when they do sting repeatedly, you might see a circular pattern of stings because they remain anchored to one spot with their mandibles and rotate around that point as they sting. Their venom is very complex. It contains many different chemicals with many different functions. The most prominent component is a group of alkaloid compounds called sulnopsins. They are toxic to human epithelium, and the sting induces a sterile pustule with accompanying pain and swelling. An interesting bit of trivia is the venom has some antibacterial and antifungal and antiparasitic properties, 
and is actually being investigated as a possible treatment for Chagas disease, among other possible medical uses. In studies on rodents, sulnopsin A has been shown to induce cardiotoxicity, respiratory depression, and seizure activity, but these effects are generally not seen in humans. The venom also contains hyaluronidase and phospholipase A, similar to bees and wasps, but not the main ingredient for fire ants. A small fraction of the venom contains soluble proteins, which may trigger severe allergic reactions in humans. So if you have a patient who goes into anaphylaxis from a fire ant sting, it's probably not from the sulnopsins, but more likely due to some proteins in the venom that were essentially just along for the ride when the sting occurred. In terms of history and physical exam, the patient will describe intense, sharp pain at the time of the sting, and then a different kind of pain afterwards, a burning sensation that gives the fire ants their name. This is often accompanied with severe itching, and these symptoms can last for several days afterwards. The findings on physical exam will depend on when you are seeing the patient. Initially, a red bump develops with surrounding erythema. This is sometimes described as a wheel and flare in the literature. The sterile pustule usually develops around 24 hours after the sting. Symptoms tend to peak at about 72 hours, give or take a little bit, and the pustule eventually ulcerates and then slowly heals. If you want to see some visual evidence of how the sting site progresses over time, Mississippi State University has some good photos on their website. I don't know if they forced a desperate undergrad student to get stung on purpose or one of the research assistants in the lab or somebody, but they have a series of photos following the same sting over the course of a full month. And I really appreciate that because where I work in an emergency department, we don't usually get to see what a wound looks like several times over the course of a month. So I find those photos to be really insightful and worth checking out. And I tip my hat in gratitude to whoever sacrificed himself for science to make those photos possible. What I just described is the local reaction to fire ant stings, which is far and away the most common outcome. There are a few other different reactions to be aware of because it changes management a bit. When the erythema and swelling from a sting exceeds 10 centimeters in diameter, it is categorized as a large local reaction. The literature also describes toxic reactions, which are extremely rare and highly variable, including serum sickness, nephrotic syndrome, and possible seizures. It's hard to speak with any certainty about these toxic reaction categories because it is such a rare outcome and a lot of the information we have comes from case studies on a certain group of patients. To be more specific, there have been, unfortunately, several cases of massive attacks by fire ants against patients in nursing homes. These patients often have decreased mobility and they aren't able to fight off a swarm of fire ants, and they might not be able to even get out of bed, and they might not even be awake and alert enough to be aware of what is happening or to be able to call for help. So some of these patients have suffered hundreds of stings in these attacks, sadly, and one case series examined six such patients who had suffered from these swarms of fire ants, and four of them died within a week of the attack. That certainly seems to suggest that the fire ant venom contributed to their deaths, but they all had various different serious medical pathologies before the attacks occurred, so it is hard to interpret that data in that context. 
Another terribly sad story involves a three-month-old female infant in Phoenix, Arizona, back in 2003, who was found in her crib surrounded by fire ants with evidence of hundreds of stings. The infant unfortunately died. A forensic pathology investigation found that her blood had a significantly elevated level of tryptase, which is strongly suggestive of anaphylaxis. And that was consistent with reports from the first responders who had been called to the scene who described the patient as having significant swelling of her airway. So the teaching point here is that a severe systemic allergic reaction is also possible secondary to fire ant stings, although you wouldn't expect that in a three-month-old infant. So that was a very strange case. Uh, Even more puzzling, the fire ants found at the scene were identified as southern fire ants, which is a native species in Arizona, rather than the red imported fire ants, who are the usual suspects. So just... An incredibly bizarre and tragic case, Uh, but do keep in mind that anaphylaxis from fire ants is a possible reaction at any age. In terms of management, for the most part, we just treat the symptoms for the local, uh, you know, common local reaction. The patient just needs oral antihistamines like diphenhydramine, Benadryl being the most common brand name in the United States, and a mild topical steroid like hydrocortisone. This can definitely be managed out on the trail. A large local reaction may require a course of oral steroids and a stronger topical steroid, so these might require a visit to a healthcare provider to get some prescriptions. Anaphylaxis is obviously a medical emergency, and the patient should receive intramuscular epinephrine as soon as possible and be transported urgently to the nearest hospital. Prevention, as they say, is the best medicine, I'm stating the obvious here, but it is recommended to keep an eye out for fire ant mounds and avoid them if possible. Wear long pants and closed-toed shoes, which I think is just good advice in general whenever you're going out into the wilderness. If you do get stung, remove the ant from your body as quickly as possible and remove yourself from the infested area also as soon as possible. In regards to eradicating imported fire ants, or at least stopping their spread, that war continues to be fought on many different fronts. Numerous methods have been tried over the past several decades with hundreds of millions of dollars spent. The biggest challenge is that you need to kill all of the queens, and the queens almost never leave their colonies except for mating. Some insecticides have been partially successful The interesting thing about giving ants poisoned food to eat is that no food is given to the queen in ant societies unless it has already been tested by the worker ants. And of course, if the worker ants drop dead, then they don't give it to the queen. So what you want is a poison that works very slowly, and ideally the worker ants would have no symptoms at all for a while after eating the poison, so they would then be willing to feed it to the queen. There have been some... Other attempts at essentially biological warfare against the fire ants, introducing a bacteria or virus or fungus or a parasite into the colony that would hopefully eliminate the fire ants without harming any humans or pets or native wildlife in the process. And maybe you were just thinking to yourself, gee, I wish we had ant decapitating flies to do this dirty work for us. And if you were thinking that, well, your wish has been granted because the forid fly is standing by, ready to help. And what they do is a female forid fly 
injects an egg into the thorax of a fire ant, and the larva that hatches from the egg burrows into the head of the ant, and it grows and eventually releases enzymes that dissolve enough tissue that the ant's head falls off. And then the larva pupates and eventually emerges from the head as a mature fly. Perhaps you have heard the phrase, living in your head rent-free. Well, this is a very literal and very extreme example of that. That idea and several other ideas have already been put into use with some success. A lot of experts say that complete eradication of these imported fire ants is likely impossible at this point, but there is definitely hope to control their spread and decrease the damage that they cause. So stay tuned. Many battles have been fought, but the war is definitely not over. What is over is this episode of the AWLS podcast. I hope you learned a few useful things about fire ants and maybe some not so useful things, but hopefully interesting nonetheless. My name is Matt Gunderson. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, best wishes and be safe out there.